Welcome to the Mum Break Podcast, a place where you can feel normal, get helpful information, and laugh your ass off, hopefully without peeing your pants. I'm your host, Erica, and I have two kiddos. I am not a mom expert, but I do have a zillion hours of therapy under my belt and no filter. I'm on my own journey to find happiness, and I want to help you on the way to yours. Hey guys, I am here with Erin Yunker from the Happy Sleep Company to chat the number one requested topic I've had when I announced this podcast. Literally, the number one by far was sleep. So I figured Erin was the perfect person to come on and chat about this because she helped sleep train my youngest son, Austin, and now he's a year and a half and is a pro sleeper because of you, Erin. So thank you for that. So glad. Maybe before we get started, you can introduce a little bit about yourself and your company. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the owner and founder of The Happy Sleep Company. Uh, That means that, you know, together with my teammate Alex, we work with really, really tired families to help them help their little ones get healthy sleep. So that means be taking their bigger, longer stretches of sleep at night, be taking their nice, long, restful naps during the day, and overall, everybody in the family just getting healthy rest. Yeah, and that's, that's, why I ended up reaching out to you so that we could work together over a year ago now is because Austin was at that point, but four months old and was up at that point, like five or six times a night and wasn't napping regularly. And it was just, we'll talk a little bit about this later on, but the emotional and physical wear and tear it took on me more than anybody else was, it was brutal. I couldn't function as a human being. So absolutely. It's amazing. Your approach specifically, maybe talk to me a bit about your approach as a sleep consultant. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I always say to parents about sleep and about parenting in general is do what works for you and your family until or unless it doesn't work anymore. So if you've got an approach to sleep that works for your family and you love it, even if other people are telling you that's not the right way or you should do something different, don't if you like the way it's going. A lot of times though, what happens is families like the way something's going or cope with the way something's going. And then at some point, they're kind of like, hey, this isn't working for us anymore. We're not getting enough rest. We don't enjoy our sleep situation the way it is. We need to make some changes. And that's when they'll reach out. So that's when I work with families and, you know, we accommodate different parenting styles. We need to know what your parenting style is before we start working together so that we can shape a sleep strategy around that. And, you know, our, our programs are really supportive and they're guided. It's you supporting and guiding your little one and us supporting and guiding you through what is often a really big change, which is sleep coaching. And it needs to be really guided. It needs to be really step-by-step. My clients are exclusively exhausted parents. So they are done with the books and the videos and all the different articles and suggestions about, you know, generic sleep advice. And what they want when they come to us is a very specific plan laid out for their baby that's going to work and help their family get good rest. I love, it's that hand-holding thing, because that was the one thing I struggled with the most, is that, well, especially with Aubrey, I didn't work with you with my first, so I have sort of the comparison, but with her, I felt as though there are one million different things out there that you can do, and there's different strategies and tips, and there's like, cry it out, and then there's more um, attachment parenting styles, And then, you know, there's also guides online and then there's Facebook groups with a million different requests and it's so incredibly overwhelming, but also really controversial too. I find sleep these days, 
and I do, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this in your own way. I, I love what you said about it being what works for you and your family. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's an important distinction to be made. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy comes is, you know, cry it out in its traditional sense means you would leave your baby alone in a room at 7 p.m. to cry and you would close the door and you wouldn't go back until 7 a.m. You've heard people talk about that. And that's what I hear when I hear cry it out. And that is not my approach. That's not our approach. It doesn't, sleep coaching does not need to mean that your baby is just left alone with no support for huge extended periods of time. Okay, so sleep, I'm sure you see a lot of challenges with parents that you work with. Why do you think sleep is so important? What are some of the biggest challenges you've seen? See, I always say sleep's like air. You've got to have it. You have to have proper sleep to be leading a healthy and happy lifestyle. It's the crux of a lot of it. So a lot of the times in families that I talk to that I meet, they're having sleep challenges. Parents are battling with anything from kind of like light grogginess to extreme fatigue, like Anywhere from, yeah, I just kind of walk around in a fog all the time since my baby was born, I'm pretty tired, to I, you know, can barely drive for 10 minutes without feeling like I'm going to fall asleep at the wheel. And that's a big deal. And that's something I hear not infrequently. And that's, you know, a really important thing to be focusing on. Um, You know, I see a lot of compromised immune systems. I'm always sick. My baby's always sick. My toddler's always sick. And that's something that can really quickly be turned around when you're getting proper rest because other than proper nutrition, there really is no better way to boost your family's immune immune system than through proper sleep. And, you know, um, difficulties concentrating at work and at home. I work with a ton of 11-month-olds and it's often because mom has looked at the calendar and realized I have to go back to work in four weeks and we're still waking up multiple times at night. Baby will, for example, only be nursed to sleep and my daycare provider has assured me she won't be breastfeeding my child <laughs> to sleep and I don't know how I'm going to function at work when I've had four broken hours of sleep at night. So we really need to turn this whole sleep thing around before we make this next big transition in our family. Um, and then the obvious sort of relationship challenges, you know, anxiety, <laughs> depression, irritability, yeah you know, that kind of thing. And there's obvious relationship challenges between spouses when we're all exhausted and snapping at each other because that's what we do when we're tired as spouses. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the really frequent relationship challenges I see between parents and an older child when somebody's not getting enough rest, whether it's, you know, I don't have time for my three-year-old right now because I'm just spending the whole day bouncing the baby, trying to get her to go to sleep on that, you know, bouncing on that yoga ball so that my three-year-old just kind of has to hang out on his own all day or, I don't have patience for my three-year-old right now because he is the issue and he is getting up, you know, multiple times out of his big kid bed at night, won't go back to sleep. And so we work with toddlers and preschoolers too, because that can be a big sleep struggle sometimes. So once it all gets turned around and everyone gets sleeping properly, we see a big turnaround in some of those relationship challenges too. It's crazy because when you talk about the older kid, like Aubrey was, I mean, she's not a superstar sleeper, but she's not, you know, terrible either. But when we had the baby... Pardon? And she's come a long way with her sleep too. Totally. And when we had Austin though, everyone just regressed, right? So she regressed. He's a newborn, so there's no stability there. And her behaviors just skyrocketed. And because I was exhausted all the time, my patience did not exist. Like, I'm not even going to give you a number of how full it was because it just didn't exist. Like, and the poor girl took the brunt of it in that I was, I snapped at her all the time and it was brutal. It was horrible. And I mean, there's a period in your life where you can't avoid that if you have a newborn, but it was, it was not great. So how much sleep should children 
actually beginning. <laughs> More than we assume usually. So newborns need tons of it. Newborns need tons of sleep. Zero to three months, we need like 15 to 18 hours in a 24-hour period. Oh, Jesus. It's a lot. It's a lot more sleep than being awake for a newborn. And then usually around four to 12 months, we're looking at like 14 to 15 hours in a day, again, between their naps and their nighttime sleep. And then 12 months and older, probably about 13 to 14 hours um, between their nap and their night. But one thing I find parents either don't know or often forget as their children get older are that children are still children and still need lots of sleep. So children up to the age of 10 need 10 to 12 hours of sleep. So, you know, it's a lot and it means still fairly early bedtimes for a lot of kids. So the eight year old who is getting home from school and shoving some dinner in his mouth on the way to hockey practice and then getting home around eight 30 and probably having some homework to do at that age. Uh, and then going to bed at like 10, 10 30 and getting up at six, six 30 the next day to start it all over again is missing out on a couple hours of sleep a night. And for children, that's a big recipe for a sleep debt and a sleep debt in adolescence is a big recipe for behavioral challenges. So it's not to say you shouldn't do fun stuff. It's not to say you should never do extracurricular activities. You absolutely should. That's also an integral part of growing up. But try to work backwards in those early years um, from a prop, from an age-appropriate bedtime to fit in all the stuff you want to fit in around whenever you can an age-appropriate bedtime so that you're also prioritizing good sleep because it's so important for adolescents. Okay, so... Early bedtimes. You're talking about early bedtimes. I, um, it's so funny because I recently went through this with Austin and we chatted a bit about it, but he was going, so Austin at this point when we're recording this, he's, oh God, I'm going to say 20 months. It's a ish. Anyway, 18 to 20 months, somewhere in there. Um, and he was going to bed at six 30. I think it was six, between six 30 and seven. And I was expressing this on Instagram and people kept saying, move his bedtime later. Like he's sleeping too much, blah, 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 blah. And I messaged you and you're like, well, just put him to bed at six. And everyone thought I was crazy, but then he started sleeping six. I mean, we've done the legwork. I'm going to put an asterisk on there. We've done the legwork already, but then he started sleeping six to six. So what are your, I mean, I know your thoughts on early bedtimes, but how do you feel about that? I'm going to take a really quick minute to talk to you about the Fresh 20 because this podcast cannot exist without ads and sponsors. And the Fresh 20 has been a system that I've been using in my house for a long time and I love it. It makes meals and dinners so, so, so much easier. Now, what it is, it's every Friday I get delivered in my inbox a meal plan of five meals for dinners. It includes the meal prep guide for the week, daily meal prep guide, as well as a grocery list, which includes the ingredients and how much everything costs. Then my sneaky little hack is I take that shopping list and I actually order all of the things on Instacart. I don't need to leave my house. I just do it from my phone and they get delivered a few hours later. Then Sunday afternoon, I spend about half an hour to 40 minutes prepping all the ingredients for the week, putting them in containers in the fridge, And when it comes time to actually make my meals on the weekdays, all I need to do really is cook the protein and assemble them. It's super easy, and I'm actually signed up for the annual classes subscription, so I have access to all of the different recipes and meal plans from all of the archives. Now, if you want to sign up, I have more information at mumbreak.ca slash thefresh20. I also have a coupon code that is MUMBREAK, and it'll give you 15% off at checkout. 
Seriously, guys, this has been a game changer for me at dinners. I love, love, love it. So to get all the information you need, go to mumbreak.ca slash the fresh 20 slash the fresh two zero. So early bedtime doesn't mean that every child has to go to bed at six. For Austin, it was a good example of where he was a bit overtired. He'd maybe gotten a bit of a sleep debt from, you know, just I think he'd had a period of sort of a toddler sleep progression and his naps weren't as long as they used to be and that kind of thing. And so if your nap isn't as long as it used to be, but your bedtime is the same time it used to be, you're starting to build up a sleep debt. And so we started putting him to bed earlier to sort of compensate for that. In general, I would say earlier bedtimes are better than late bedtimes. Um, For infants who are on like two, three, four naps a day, what I really promote you looking at instead of the exact same time on the clock every day for bedtime is awake times. I'm a big proponent Mm -hmm. of awake times. So most children are needing to be in bed before eight o'clock. But for infants, that doesn't mean exactly eight o'clock, exactly seven o'clock, exactly six o'clock every night. It means an age appropriate amount of time from their last nap to their bedtime. So if my nine month old can handle three hours of awake time before bed, then say today their second nap ends at four, I'm going to put my nine month old in bed at seven o'clock that night, three hours after she's woken up. If tomorrow her nap ends at 4.30, then her bedtime is 7.30. If the next day, you know, I was out and about doing activities, her naps got really thrown off and they were already done by quarter after three in the afternoon, I'm gonna put her to bed at quarter after six. So I don't recommend a static bedtime at that age Every single night, focus on awake times. And then when your child is, say, 16, 18 months and beyond and on one nap a day, that is when you can sort of finally get on a bit more of a static schedule where your child has their one nap around the same time every day and they go to bed around the same time each night. But if you do find when your child is going through some kind of regression or transition and needs some more sleep, an even earlier bedtime can sometimes be helpful. I'm working with a little girl right now and her parents came to me because she would sleep through the night until 4.15 a.m. every day. And she would keep getting up at 4.15 every day. And within a few nights of putting her on a six o'clock bedtime, we already had her sleeping to like 5.30, quarter to six, which is still not quite where we want to be, hopefully, but it's way better than quarter after four in the morning. And amazingly, it's putting her to bed at 6 p.m. that helps with that because sleep begets sleep. And the bigger sleep that your child has, the harder their nights will be, the earlier they will wake in the morning. The more rested they are, the more they will rest. Oh, it dry. I think one of my biggest pet peeves is when, and I find it tends to be with the generation above me says that just put your kid to bed later because then they'll sleep in. I'm like, it doesn't work like that. That is never you have to the- let your baby sleep at grandma's for the night and try that out and see if that works. And then maybe they change their mind. Or of course, inevitably your child does amazing things for their grandparents that they don't do for you and prove you wrong. True. Yeah, it's fine. You know, kids are always the worst for their moms for some reason. They know we'll love them forever, even though they drive us crazy. Okay, so how many naps then? Um, so you said starting to switch to sort of one nap and static nap around 16, 16 to 18 months. But what about everything before that? How many naps should your baby be having? Lots and lots. Newborns can only handle around an hour of awake time in between all their sleeps before they're getting overtired. So they need like four, five, even six naps. And then usually around the four and a half, five month mark, we start to see children get on a good three nap schedule. Normally they're going to need to hang on to three naps until they're somewhere between seven and eight months of age. Some children will even hang on to three naps until they're nine months, but usually between seven and eight months, we'll see your child be ready for the transition to a good two nap schedule. And then usually they're going to need to hang on to a two nap schedule until they're around 16 to 18 months when they're ready to drop to one nap. 
a lot of children get dropped to one nap at 12 months because they go to a daycare that will only accommodate one nap. I bow down to daycare providers and totally understand why they would do that because it's very inconvenient to have a few kids who need two naps sort of mid-morning, mid-afternoon and only a couple of kids who need, you know, one nap in the middle of the day and how do you, you know, accommodate that? You just put everybody on the same schedule. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I often see a lot of children start to build up a sleep debt by sort of 14, 15 months if they get dropped to one nap at 12 months and then we start to see those really early morning wake-ups and disrupted nighttime sleeps and that kind of thing. So if you can find a daycare that will accommodate a two-nap schedule, that's fantastic. If you can't and you otherwise love your daycare and you're like, I really want my child to go here, even though they have to go to one nap at 12 months, then I would definitely suggest an early bedtime for a while until they adjust. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes total sense. And like you're talking about newborns, four, five, mm-hmm. six naps a day or five, yeah. six naps a day. Are your... I, uh, what do you think about naps on the go? When is that appropriate? When is it not? Yeah, naps on the go are necessary, especially for a newborn. Like your mom can't be at home or, or dad all day long, every day, expecting all the naps, all six naps to happen at home. When you're looking at a newborn sleep, I mean, there's so many variables. There's so much development going on. You have to be realistic about it. But if you're really trying to focus on good sleep habits from day one, a really good thing to try and focus on is the first nap of the day being at home in the crib and bedtime being at a proper time and focusing on good sleep through the night. And then if some of your other naps in the day are on the go, in the stroller, in the carrier, that kind of thing, it's not the end of the world. At what point do you really emphasize focusing on naps at home? Like at what, is there an age or is it just really try to get that first nap? Newborn stage, if you really are finding some struggles with sleep and you're looking at sleep coaching or changing sleep patterns, that's a good time to start to think about a bit more of a routine in terms of your naps and having more of them at home than on the go. Um, When I'm working with clients or when you at home are focusing on sleep coaching on your own, I really suggest that A, you have a good plan in place for how you're going to do it. But two, you have a good two weeks or so to devote to being mainly at home for proper naps at proper times in the crib because you're asking your child to learn how to sleep well there. So we want to give them the chance to sleep there. Um, after you've done sleep coaching and your child's a fabulous sleeper, if a couple of times a week you're on the go and your child falls asleep in the stroller on the way home and they have their afternoon nap there, is it the end of the world? It's not, but still I would suggest that the norm be naps at home and the exception be the naps on the go. I guess it's similar to potty training in that, like for our strategy for potty training for Aubrey, we were just home for four days and we taught her the new skill at home and it sucked for us, but it was such a short period of time. And then you know, after that four days and she was potty trained because we just focused on it so much those four days. So same kind of philosophy. I'm exactly. And the same kind of thing with sleep where now you have a lot of flexibility where you can go to a friend's house for the entire afternoon and take a playpen with you and put your child down there for a nap because they are a good sleeper. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. What are, in terms of the challenges that you see, what are some of the biggest sleep challenges you see? So biggest things I see are my baby will only sleep well if in bed with a parent or on a parent. And again, that's not necessarily a challenge for some families. Some families enjoy that scenario, but some families find it very challenging and they, this wasn't their plan for sleeping, but it's the only way they can get their baby to sleep. Um, my baby hates his crib. He doesn't like his crib. Um, that's not a thing. Babies don't know how to hate. That's the most beautiful thing about babies, but they might not be very familiar with their crib as a place to sleep if they don't go in there awake very often. So, you know, that's something to think about. 
Um, you know, my baby wakes up multiple times at night at an age where I kind of thought that wasn't going to be happening anymore, or at least not so much. And my baby only ever naps for 30 to 45 minutes at a time. Yes. I remember that with Aubrey. It was like clockwork during the day. I'm like, I just sleep for longer than 30. It was like 31 minutes. And she, I'd be like, eh. So there's a number of reasons that 30 to 45 minute nap might happen. But the biggest reason is usually what I refer to as sleep props. Okay. So what are sleep props? So sleep props, when I say that, or if you hear me say sleep crutches, it's anything that your baby relies on in order to get to sleep that he will then inevitably need in order to get back to sleep. Anytime he's kind of in a light stage of sleep and wakes up. So that might be rocking to sleep, feeding to sleep, being in a bed with you to sleep, using a pacifier, bouncing on a yoga ball until your baby gets really drowsy or sleepy in your arms, that kind of thing. So the 45 minute nap is a really good example of what happens when your baby's really reliant on a sleep crutch because 45 minutes is one sleep cycle for a baby. So say my sleep crutch is bouncing on the yoga ball with my baby in my arms. And I've done that and baby's very sleepy or asleep and I put him in the crib and I ninja my way out of the room and I get a chance to maybe wash my hair, but exactly 45 minutes later, every single time he wakes up. It's as soon as you sit down every single time, you're like, coffee's hot, sit down every time. You get to have your toast or your hair washed, but not both. No. Um, But what's happened is your baby's gone through one sleep cycle. So right near the end of it, around that 30 to 45 minute mark, he's rustling, he's stirring, he's in a light stage of sleep, trying to transition to the next sleep cycle. But instead, when his eyelids flutter a little bit, they pop wide open and he's like, whoa, bam, wait a minute. This is not where I went to sleep. I was in someone's arms. This is not how I went to sleep. I had a (laughs) bottle or a breath or a pacifier in my mouth. None of that stuff is happening right now. And I don't know how to get back to sleep in this scenario because this isn't how I went to sleep in the first place. So when I work with families and the goal in sleep coaching is to teach your little one how to go into the crib awake and fall asleep independently. And that does not mean just leaving your baby alone in a crib to cry by himself for huge extended periods of time with no support. He should be able to hear your voice and feel your touch and be picked up for a hug if he needs a hug. But at the same time, we need to recognize that your baby is going to be frustrated if we're trying to teach him something brand new that he's never done before. And an infant's way of expressing frustration is going to be through tears and yelling and protest. So the very important thing is managing that protest in a way that your little one has support. You know, he knows someone is there for him. He's not simply left for big extended periods of time without love and reassurance. And he learns in a positive way that way. So he learns to put himself to sleep independently, but with support and reassurance from you and comes out the other side, a baby who is confident and comfortable and familiar with how to go into his crib awake and fall asleep on his own. And then that turns into falling back to sleep on his own at two o'clock in the morning or falling back to sleep on his own at that 45 minute mark of a nap. And then you get baby sleeping through the night and taking good long naps. Yeah. That sounds amazing. If, um, okay. So yes, babies express themselves. They will at some point cry because babies, they do that. That's the only way they can communicate with us. I know myself personally, I really struggled emotionally and like physically with hearing my children cry. I had this sort of chemical reaction. I don't know what it was where I instantly just started to sweat and I got anxiety. So when I was, before I started doing my sleep coaching with you, I was really anxious about how that would feel. 
And one of the things that I did was I just, I like, when I was working with you, I put on headphones and just put on something that made me happy, like how, and that really helped. And obviously the comfort of knowing exactly what I was doing and having your support along the way saying, you know, you're doing a good job, maybe adjust this, do this, whatever. What other tips do you give to moms who are in that situation where they've chosen the sleep plan that works for them and they're sticking with it, but they feel like it's hard. so overwhelmed and sad and it's hard for them emotionally. Yeah. So definitely what you suggested, you know, so if a family is like, we're going to do this, we're going to do sleep coaching. We understand there are going to be tears involved, but in the long term, it's going to mean less tears for our whole family because we're all going to sleep well. So mm-hmm. let's do this. So how do we cope? So you could, you know, if you are choosing an approach where you're say staying in the room with your baby, which is one approach to sleep coaching, okay. then maybe you do take in like your phone with a nice long podcast or a playlist on it and some noise canceling headphones and you be with your baby the whole time and you make sure your baby knows you're there for them, but you're not using the sleep crutches you used to. And that's one way to cope. A lot of times uh, I'll recommend that dad take the lead on at least the first few Ooh, nights of sleep. Oh, that's coaching. smart. Yeah. So for, you know, various reasons and sometimes not, sometimes mom's like, no, I'm taking the lead on this because I'm actually the one who feels most strongly that we need to make a change because I'm the one dealing with the majority of the sleep deprivation. And so I will be strong and I will get through this the best because I have the most patience and I also am the one most committed to this working. That was us. (laughs) A lot of times mom also says no like physiologically we're different and dad can handle this better than I can. If my baby's upset, um, I know my baby's not going to just be left alone. I know that he's going to have someone there for him. So I'm okay leaving and going out for a coffee with a friend while dad, who is fully aware of what the plan is, is there for our baby and helping our baby learn how to sleep. So sometimes that can be very helpful too. That's such an amazing strategy. And I think that if moms can just, you know, trust enough in their partners and just sort of let them do it. Then that's such a good option. Cause I'm with Aubrey when I had no idea what I was doing. Cause I had no support whatsoever. I was just like, I'm going to try this. I remember hiding in the basement, listening to her, watching her on like my video monitor, chugging wine, stress drinking. You know, it's almost over, you know, like 23 minutes, 24 minutes. And I just, I didn't know what I want and I didn't have any guidance, but it was, it was such an anxious thing. And I think that's what people feel like sleep coaching is. And it, wasn't my experience with you with Austin. I think a lot of parents, and I, well, I know a lot of parents will say that to me is that the big difference once you have a plan is that even though it doesn't make it easier to hear your baby be frustrated, it helps knowing that you have a very specific minute by minute plan for what to do in every scenario. And that helps helps keep you calm and sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel where you know that we're going to get through the other side of this with a baby who's a good sleeper and a family who's getting better rest because you have a plan in place and you're not just sort of winging it at bedtime and then winging it again at two o'clock in the morning and having a whisper fight in bed with your husband about okay, <laughs> two o'clock in the morning, what are we going to do? We didn't really decide what to do now, but you know, when you have a plan in place, it's like, no, this is what we've all agreed on. This is where all the parents, like both of the parents, grandparents, whoever else is involved, a nanny, a daycare provider, everybody is singing from the same songbook and baby's not confused because you have one plan for how you're going to manage each sleep scenario. Well, it's the same thing as like you can equate it to a personal trainer or a nutritionist like I'm working with right now. Like the reason why I hire a personal trainer or a nutritionist is because they give me a clear path or a clear pan based on their expertise and then they customize it for my situation, which I love. Okay. So night feeds. I just want to ask you quickly about night feeds. At what point should a baby not have any more night feeds? 
I mean, should is a tough word. I know, sorry. And I mean, it's true. Every baby is different. So um, it's certainly something to talk to your doctor about. But when a baby is at an age and a weight where we're all comfortable that they don't need a night to feed anymore, then, you know, that's what we look at. I've worked with many babies around the four-month mark and beyond who are at a healthy weight, who are fine to do the night without a feed. I've also worked with four-month-olds who do still need a nighttime feed. And it is important to keep in mind that sleep coaching is not synonymous with removing nighttime feeds. You can keep a nighttime feed and still have success with sleep coaching if that's what we need to do because of your baby's weight, because of any supply issues, things like that. Uh, but if a baby is at an age and a weight where we're fine to remove nighttime feeds, it can also be an opportunity to make sure we're not keeping any sleep crutches so we're not confusing your baby at all. And that's where we look at baby sleeping all the way through the night and being on that great nap schedule. I love that because on Facebook groups, people just say it has to be at this age that things get dropped and then everyone fights and bitches about it. And it's like, just, it's whatever works for your baby and you know, it's best for everybody in consultation with your doctor. hundred percent. I just finished working with a six month old who weighed not quite 12 pounds. We kept a nighttime feed. So, you know, if I'd gone by the advice of someone on whatever channel that said at six months, you can remove nighttime feeds. Well, what if my baby isn't even quite 12 pounds at six months? We're not going to remove the nighttime feeds. What if my baby weighs 19 pounds at six months? We're probably okay. <laughs> yeah. I think mine was like 25 pounds. Like, yeah, my, okay. <laughs> like my kids are well fed. Um, <laughs> okay. So baby's room, are there any tips that you have for like what should be in your baby's room? What shouldn't be in your baby's room? Yeah, where your baby sleeps is the first place to start because make sure it's actually conducive to sleep. So I would avoid distractions, you know, twinkly mobiles over the crib, toy fishy aquariums attached to the side of the crib. They seem like a good idea because they distract your baby when they're in there during the day, maybe while you're trying to fold some laundry, but they distract them from going to sleep. So I would remove those distractions and just have a nice clean, empty crib. I love a sleep sack. For children, so I would have them sleep in that. They're safer than blankets for infants because they can't go up over your child's head, but they also provide a really good sleep cue that helps your child understand, oh, the sack thing is on. That must mean my sleep time is coming. <laughs> happens every time. The sack um, thing. Also, I have to say, I did not fight the sleep sack long enough with Aubrey. I I didn't get a big, like, I wish I had invested in a bigger size. And then because I gave up on the sleep sack, then she was able to crawl out of her crib earlier. And then we had to switch her to a bed and it was just a disaster. So if anyone's listening and you're like, I don't really need a sleep sack anymore, hold it close, hold it dear, fight for it. It is the best thing ever. It will keep your kid trapped in that cage. So it stays in there. It's amazing. I really, really recommend a crib until at least three years old, if not three and a half. And often the two biggest reasons I see parents move away from a crib earlier than three years of age. One is they have another baby on the way and they want the crib for the baby. Invest in a second crib. It is worth your sanity. That's what we did. Is their child climbs out of the crib. But if you make sure it's at its absolute lowest setting and you keep your child in a sleep sack, that can often help them stay in a, in a crib longer. Some children not, but many children it can. So I would definitely recommend a sleep sack. You can get them in like size two to four years. Size three I saw years. one in like five to six even the other day. Yeah, I had a three to six year. My daughter, my husband is six foot six and my daughter absolutely takes after her dad. So she's really tall and always has been. And she was in a crib till she was three and a half. Yeah, no, that's, it's the dream. And it, honestly, for us, it was just Aubrey could crawl out of it. And we bought a second crib when Austin was born. And then as soon as he was born, she started crawling out of her crib and there was nothing yeah. we could do to keep it. I'm like, great. We have two cribs now. Yeah. Anyways, it's not really baby sleep, but it's, it's fight for the sleep. Sack. It helps for sure. So nice and, um, nice and we were avoiding distractions. We want it to be nice and dark. 
super, super dark, actually. I recommend blackout blinds, like good pull down, opaque roller style or accordion style blackout blinds covered by blackout curtains to really maximize darkness. Your child's mind is going a thousand miles a minute. So any like bits of light and stuff they can see in the room, it's just going to distract them from going to sleep. So really try to make it nice and dark in their room. Um, and sorry about quick question about that. What about traveling? What do you recommend if you're traveling or go to grandma and grandpa's or a hotel? For sure. So you can take that with you. A lot of people will say to me, no, that's not realistic because when you're on the go, you can't always make it dark. It's 2019. There's products for everything. So there's a really good product. There's a couple of them. The one I have tried and really like is the Grow Anywhere blind. So it's a portable blackout blind that sticks in the window with suction cups. So you can get one of those. It folds up in a nice little bag, but it expands to a pretty big size for a decent size window. We take one wherever we go, whether we're going to grandma's house, whether we're going to a hotel, whether we're staying at like an Airbnb and we're not sure what the window situation is or the curtain situation. Then you have darkness wherever you go. And especially, you know, even my daughter is seven, so she's and she's a great sleeper. Um, <laughs> but she's still seven, and if we're staying in a room that doesn't have any curtains, and it's five o'clock in the morning in the middle of July, she's up and she wants to be up and playing. Whereas if we've thrown our grow blind in the in the window, then we get you know a couple of extra hours of sleep because people you know we're not all awake having trouble getting back to sleep because the sun's shining in the window. So that can be a really good tool for travel as well. Um, so nice and dark, nice and quiet. You don't have to use a sound machine for your child to learn to sleep well, but if you do want to use a sound machine, good scenarios are, I have an older child who's making noise during nap time. I have a pet who's fairly loud. I live on a really busy street with a couple of, you know, city buses running down my street every 20 minutes. Those are not terrible scenarios to think about using a sound machine. So if you're going to use one, I would just use one on like a white noise or a rain setting. So it's just a nice constant steady sound rather than like big beating heartbeats or ocean waves that crash and lull. Um, just a nice constant steady sound and on continuously rather than being on a timer. Okay. So just basically have it on the entire have time. It on for the whole nap and the whole nighttime. Cause if it's on like a 45 minute timer, then it's not helping you at five o'clock in the morning when the birds are chirping outside of your child's window. No. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. Bedtime routine. This is one of the questions I get asked so much on Instagram. What do I do for my bedtime routine? So what is your recommendation for your clients or people that you work with? Yeah, for sure. So I love a bedtime routine. Your children are too little for you to verbalize. This is what is happening next, but you can show them every night and help them understand when sleep time is coming up with a good consistent bedtime routine with similar things happening in a similar order each night. So they help, they, they understand sleep time is coming up. Children like to know what's coming up next. They do not like surprises in their scheduling. So a bath is a great idea. Don't use soap and bubble bath every night. We don't want your child's skin drying out. If you're really against a bath every night, because some people are, then you could do like a warm wipe down in the cloth to simulate a bath on the nights that you're not doing a bath, but you're comfy doing a bath. I love it. It's so different than anything else that happens in your child's day that it sends a really good cue that the big long sleep is coming up. A lot of people also don't want to do a bath because they're like, it's such a chore. It cuts into our night. We're already busy. Think about it as an extension of your family time. Try not to think about it as a chore. You know, when my daughter's in the bath, instead of thinking like, oh, we have to get this over with, I just think about it as like more time for us to hang out. Like instead of me wandering around doing stuff, I'll sit on the top of the toilet seat and sit next to her and we'll chat about her day and she'll play games with toys in the tub and we'll chat about whatever games she's doing. And so 
instead of thinking it as like, we just got to get this done and it's cutting into our evening time, think about it as an extension of your family time in the evening. I think that's a really good point too, because especially I found as my kids get old enough to play and actually play in the tub, it's just another activity to fill time as well. (laughs) And it's an activity where you just sit there and don't do anything, which is amazing. Like, I, I mean, I don't drink as much now, but before it was like every night, the routine was put the kids in the bath, have a glass of wine, chill, sitting on the floor. And it was great. I just, you made it into a fun, relaxing activity that we all had pieces of that we liked. And I'm not advocating always drinking at the bath at night, but it was my jam. I liked it. Yeah, you do some downtime and your kids are happy because kids, especially as they get older, love the bath. Love it. So bath and then into their, you know, brush their teeth that they're, well, whatever age you can be brushing teeth. I mean, you're obviously not using toothpaste in an actual toothbrush for infants, but you can brush teeth at any age or brush gums. And then, um, you know, into their PJs and into their sleep sack if you're using that. And if you're, if you still have an infant, you could be doing a bedtime feed at that point. But I always recommend reading a couple of little stories after the bedtime feed if you're still at an age where you're doing the feed because, which, you know, lots of my clients are because I'm working with lots of infants. Um, I'm reading a couple little stories afterwards, make sure that feeding is not the very last thing that mm-hmm. happens before your child goes into the crib. It makes sure they have their very necessary bedtime feed to top up their tummy for the night, but it makes sure that we're trying to avoid that feed sleep association that can make sleep so difficult. Because if feeding is the very last thing that happens before baby goes into the crib and they get fairly drowsy on it or fall asleep on the feed, then that's where you get what we were talking about before, which is those sleep crutches that cause your baby to wake through the night saying, I don't even know how I got in this crib and I need the breast or bottle in my mouth right now in order to be going back to sleep. So again, this is all generally for older infants beyond the newborn stage that we're talking about, but that's where we're really talking about trying to make sure that we have that separation between, um, between feeding and going into the crib. And going into the crib. So I know that some people say put them in drowsy. Some people say wide awake. Like how the hell do you just put your, like, when you're putting them physically into the crib, how should they be? <laughs> so I'm not a fan of drowsy, but awake, which goes against a lot of what you'll read in a lot of books. And I know it makes it hard because it's part of that. There's such conflicting advice out there. And I'm just making it more confusing by saying drowsy, but awake is a sham, but drowsy, but awake. <laughs> is a sham. So drowsy, but awake can kind of work with newborns. If I'm working with a family of, with a newborn, which is not that often, because lots of times we're just kind of doing whatever we can do to get all of us the most sleep we can in those first few months. Survival. comes to me and says, can you please help us shape some good sleep habits? We're not doing sleep coaching, but we have a newborn and we're trying to shape good sleep habits. Then drowsy, but awake is not a bad idea where we are getting your child really calmed and lulled, but their eyes are still open and they go into the crib that way we can from the early days hopefully start to shape the idea of going into the crib with their eyes open and falling asleep using their own sleep skills. However, if you're past the newborn stage and you've already got some pretty significant sleep crutches built up and habits developed and you're looking to do sleep coaching, drowsy but awake essentially just means that your child is still not learning how to do the whole idea of going to sleep on their own on their own. So, you know, what I always say to families is, so you've gotten your child like 50 to 75% drowsy with some rocking, and then you put him into the crib, and he does the other half of the work to get to sleep. Great. But at one o'clock in the morning, when your child wakes up and is 100% awake, he's like, hey, guys, I'm 100% awake right now. I don't go from 100% awake to 100% asleep using my own sleep skills. 
you do 50 to 75% of the work for me. So you're going to need to come back here and do that rocking again to get back to sleep. So that's where sleep coaching in my, you know, my suggestion is that baby's going to the crib awake so they can learn to fall asleep independently. And again, that's sleep coaching. That's where parents will say, but he's going to be upset. That's realistic. And that's where we want to develop a plan for what are we going to do to reassure him so that he becomes comfortable with this. That no, that makes that makes sense when you explain it that way. Because for so long, all you heard was drowsy but awake. But it's I know. explaining it that way makes a lot of sense. Can we go back to the bedtime routine just for a second? Because I have one quick question: At what age should you start regularly doing a bedtime routine? I recommend day one. You can do a bedtime routine from day one, where you do a little bath in your infant tub. You do um, PJs and a swaddle or a sleep sack, depending on what you're using in the newborn stage. You do a bedtime feed and try everything you can to keep your newborn awake on the feed, which can be tough. And then you can even read a little story. Obviously, your newborn isn't going to care a whole lot about it, but it instills, instills those really good habits from day one that start to just strengthen and strengthen and strengthen. So you end up with a child who doesn't need sleep coaching because you've developed these great habits from day one. Is that always totally realistic and going to happen? No. Some newborns are just going to be like, I'm not having this. You're going to have to hold me to sleep. And then those parents just say, again, you know what? We're new at this. We're figuring all this out. We are just going to do whatever we can to get you the most sleep possible right now. And if we have to look at changing some sleep habits later on, then we will. But sometimes starting off with those great habits from day one can be very, very helpful. I love that so much because with when Aubrey was born, I had no idea. Like I, I had this thing where I prepared so much for pregnancy and then I had a baby and I was like, I have no idea what to do now. I didn't know about bedtime routines and I didn't even, I didn't cross my mind at all. I just was like, I'm going to just put my kid in the crib. And we ended up for the first three months of her life swinging, sleeping in a swing on like full aggressive force. And then, you know, come four or five months when we've built up this huge sleep debt, we're like, okay, what? what now? Like, how do we fix this? And we almost had to rework everything. But at the same time, those first three months are survival, right? So you're just doing what you can. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Like the stuff that we prepare for or don't prepare for. And then our child comes out and is like, Hey, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I've been a sleep consultant for five years, but my daughter is seven. So I was not a sleep consultant when she was born. And I was stressed and had read so much about breastfeeding. And then, and I read nothing about sleep because I was like, why would you baby sleep? And then my daughter came and breastfeeding was an absolute and utter breeze and sleep was an absolute and utter disaster. And I was like, shoot, I read up on the wrong stuff for me and for my baby because that's not at all how it went. So, I mean, it's hard to prepare for everything. It's easy because there's lots of information at our fingertips, but that also makes it very, very difficult sometimes because it can be very overwhelming. So if people want to work with you, how do they go about finding you online? Where do they contact you? What are some of your options? Yeah, for sure. So we have our website, of course, thehappysleepcompany.ca, and families can go there. There's loads of resources, even if you just want to start reading. So there's tons of blogs about just about every sleep issue, challenge, um, and obstacle that you could come up with, nap transitions, sleep regressions, all that kind of stuff. So they can look there. Uh, We have our Instagram account and our Facebook account, which are both the Happy Sleep Company handle. And we do free 20 minute phone consultations. So that's where most families will begin if they're looking for advice and looking for ideas about support and what our support would look like. We'll do a free 20 minute phone consultation. We'll figure out what's going on with sleep in your family, how we can help, what our main suggestions would be. And then if they want to work together, 
we do uh, a full consultation. So then that takes like an hour to an hour and a half. If they're in Ottawa, we can do it in their home if they like. We can also do them on Skype and FaceTime. So I'm working with a family in New York and a family in LA right now because they found me on Google and we can do everything on FaceTime if we need to. So we do that full initial consultation where we go through every single step of what we're going to work on with your baby. And then we have two weeks together. So every day during that time, our clients are sending us a sleep log. Every day I'm looking at that. I'm providing advice and feedback and answers to any questions they might have. And then we also talk on the phone a few times during the two weeks in addition to that daily email support. That's amazing. So for that free phone consultation, people can book that on your website then? Yeah, there's a form you can just fill out online and it just comes straight through to us and we can book a time for a free 20-minute phone consultation. Amazing. For all you guys listening, I'll link up all those links so you can just go to the description on this podcast episode and find it in there. Um, But Erin, thank you so much for tackling the number one requested topic, sleep. It really is huge. It's, I mean, sleep and nutrition are kind of the two biggies when you are first starting out with baby and there's lots of information out there. It can be, it can be easy to get bogged down in it, but we're certainly here to help and can offer some really specific advice. Amazing. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, guys, that was Erin Yunker, the founder and owner of the Happy Sleep Company. Like I said, I worked with her with my son, Austin, when he was about five months old. And it was, I'm not even kidding you, the best thing we ever did for our family. So I'll make sure to put all of her information and content in the description below. And then if you guys like what you're hearing, I would love for you to subscribe and or leave a review for this podcast. If you want to track me on Instagram, it's at mum.break. Have a great day.